Hey guys, and welcome to the first episode of Murdered and Missing. I'm your host, Nicole, and the case I'm going to tell you about is straight from my hometown, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This case is nuts, so buckle up. This is the story of America's unknown child, or the way he was initially referred to in 1957, the boy in the box. On a cold rainy day in the Fox Chase section of Philadelphia in 1957, a young man would set out to check his rabbit traps that he had set up in the area. What he found instead was a cardboard box that once housed a baby's bassinet. And inside that box, the young man would discover the nude, lifeless body of a child wrapped only in a blanket. But instead of reporting his findings to the police, he walked away. He feared that if the police knew the real reason why he was out there that day in the woods, he would get in trouble. And he thought that the police would confiscate his traps. So he didn't say anything. And a few days later, a 27-year-old college student by the name of Frederick Meninois was driving along Susquehanna Road when he spotted a rabbit dash in to the trees. So Frederick would go on to tell police that he knew that there was traps in the area. And when he saw the rabbit, he thought to himself that he wanted to pull over and that he was going to go and follow the rabbit into the woods. And this little adventure of his would lead him to also come across the body of the boy in the box. He too would not report the body immediately to police. A few days later, however, he would see a news report about a missing girl from the area. And he thought to himself, hmm, better call the police now. Sadly, the little girl from the news story would be found a week later in an abandoned home and she had passed away from starvation. However, when the police had this news of this little boy and this other child that was found deceased, they began to investigate. So they would go to the area where Frederick stated he found the box. And this area was near the intersections of Varee and Susquehanna Road. So once the police got there, they would get the ME to come out and the ME would transport the little boy back to the medical examiner's office. And as he begun his autopsy, and completed his findings and wrote up his report, he would state that the unknown boy is believed to be between the ages of three to seven. He had been born sometime between 1950 and 1953, and he stood three foot, three inches tall, or 99.06 centimeters. He weighed 30 pounds, or 13.608 kilograms. He was noted to be white with a pale complexion and sandy blonde to brown hair with blue eyes. His hair was matted and seemed crudely cut. This cut happened either just before his death or post-mortem. 
as investigators would find clumps of his cut hair clinging to his body. His fingernails were neatly trimmed, and his fingertips, palms of his hands, and the soles of his feet were wrinkled, indicating that he was likely submerged in water sometime shortly before his death. He was malnourished, and he was covered in scars and bruises. His scars would include four that were found on his forehead, a scar under his chin that had already healed, several other small scars on his body, including one on his left elbow. And the ME also noted that there were two small scars on his groin and his ankle. And they believed that these scars may be from a prior medical procedure. In addition to the scars, he was covered in bruises, indicating that shortly before his death and the time leading up to his death, he was abused. With all of this information, Emmy was shocked to find that there were no broken bones and there was also no vaccine scars noted. The Emmy also pointed out that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. There was evidence of a brown residue found in his esophagus. However, the Emmy noted that he had not eaten for two to three hours prior to his death. Now, the weather in Philadelphia in February is cold. It is bitter cold, which made it harder for the ME to determine the exact time of death. He estimated that he died sometime between a few days to two weeks before being found. But it was raining in the weeks leading up to the discovery of the box, and the box was dry. So this indicated that he was most likely placed in the woods a few days before being found. So he may have possibly been murdered and placed in the box immediately, or he was murdered, kept somewhere else, placed in the box, and then dumped. We don't, we don't really know. In the beginning stages of the investigation, Philly PD were hopeful. You know, they were hopeful that this little boy would be quickly identified. He was fingerprinted, and they used those fingerprints to cross-check his, um, his fingerprints with medical records, and they cross-checked his footprints with medical records from local hospitals and documents from a home for unwed mothers. However, nobody in the area had reported their son missing, and he didn't match any of those records that they had checked. So having no hits on his fingerprints and Nobody reporting their child missing, and he didn't even match any of the descriptions of any missing children in the area. They would need to get i would need to get creative in hopes of identifying this boy. So the police would use a broadcast system called a teletype, and they would broadcast his death nationwide. A teletype is a typewriter that can independently send messages over non-switched telephone networks, public telephone networks, radios, 
for microwave links. Now this broadcast would lead to 10 different, 10 different um, individuals from 10 different states to come to Pennsylvania and in an attempt to identify this little boy. And these people who, who traveled from these states were unable to identify him, sadly. So this, of course, was yet another stall in the case. So this would prompt the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is a local newspaper, to put out over 400,000 flyers. And they were hoping that these flyers were going to garner enough traction and we were going to be able to identify who this little boy was. They passed them out in public places, they passed them out to pedestrians, and they even enclosed them into utility bills. And that was, you know, their, their big hope. That was like, all right, we're, we're, we're going to garner enough information. And in addition to these flyers that they put out, they also published an article in some medical journals and they described the scars that the little boy had. And more specifically, they were describing the scars on his groin and his ankle, you know, because they thought that those were surgical scars. So they hoped that by publishing in this medical journal that it would lead them to the doctor or a nurse or a scrub tech or an OR tech or somebody somewhere who recognized these scars, was in on that surgery or something. Nothing came from this article. And they don't know if it's because the doctor didn't see it, the doctor passed away, or what? All I know is that the article led nowhere. The flyers, however, led to hundreds of tips. But none of these tips would pan out. None of the tips that would come in would lead to an identity of this little boy. So even though the flyers were, you know, yet another dead end in this case, the evidence that they found was not. So when police initially got on scene, they enlisted the help of police academy recruits. And in addition to the police and the recruits, they were able to collect some evidence. So in addition to the box that he was found in and the blanket, they also found a blue hat, a scarf that belonged to a child, a handkerchief, and a single strand of brown hair at the scene. The hair does not match the hair from the little boy. So we And we still don't know whose hair this is either, by the way. The blue hat seemed to be a pretty promising lead. So this hat would eventually be traced back to a local hat company located on South 7th Street in Philadelphia. So police would go there and they would question the shop's owner. And she would tell them, the police, that a man between the ages of 26 and 30 had come in and purchased this hat. And he purchased this hat using cash. So 
Frederick, from earlier, he was 27. Police were not able to link Frederick and this hat, but I just found that a little fishy. But that's just me. So now, that's another dead end. But we got the box, right? You know, he was in this box. And it was a bassinet that was once in this box. And it had a serial number on it. So they thought, great. Now we're going to use this serial number. And we're going to see if we can find out what store this bassinet came from. And they were able to trace it back to a JCPenney store located in Upper Darby. Now, Upper Darby is a suburb of Philadelphia. And once police were able to trace it back to that Upper Darby JCPenney store, they were able to figure out that 11 of these bassinets had been sold. Some sources reported that there was only, um, there was 12 bassinets, but a majority of the sources that I found, it was 11. And of those 11 sold, they were able to contact nine individuals, which was amazing. And of those nine individuals that they contacted, none of them could be linked to a missing child. Not so amazing. However, the last two bassinets, they were never able to link to anybody. So with that, the investigation would stall out yet again. And eventually, the boy would be buried in what's known as a potter's field, which is a grave for the unknown or unclaimed. And he would remain in that grave until 1998. And in 1998, an article written by True Crime Edition states that he would be exhumed for the first time. That's right, the first time. So they would extract his DNA and uh, they would get it from his teeth and they were, you know, hoping that with DNA, um, they would be able to link him to somebody. Now, while they had him exhumed, they went ahead and moved him to the Ivy Hill Cemetery um, where he would remain unknown and undisturbed until 2019. So an article written by CBS Philly back in April of 2021 reported that there had been a potential break in the case. And the, the article would state that in 2019, two homicide detectives had gotten permission to exhume him once more. And so they did. And this time, they were able to retrieve even more DNA, which is great that there's still DNA left to gather. So they would take this DNA and they would send it off to a lab in Europe. And the lab in Europe was able to get a DNA profile for the boy. And... This DNA profile, you know, they're hoping that eventually they'll be able to get a familial match. Um, and I was talking to my dad over dinner about this, and he seems to think that they were able to link it to an aunt. You know, I haven't been able to find anything about an aunt. However, if I do, 
I will definitely drop an update because that would be phenomenal if we would be able to figure out who this little boy is. But as it stands, there is no match. There's there's no family to tie him to. You know, he remains America's unknown child. There are some wild theories about who this unknown child is. So let's dive into them. Theory number one. This theory seems plausible, maybe? I don't know. So theory number one is that he was from a local foster home. And this foster home was located a mile and a half from where he was found. And in 1960, just three years after this boy was found, an employee from the medical examiner's office um, by the name of Remington Bristow would contact a psychic and by contacting the psychic he hoped that it could lead him to the killer or maybe to the boy's family so this psychic would lead bristow to the foster home and this foster home was run by author arthur excuse me and Catherine nicoletti Catherine's daughter from a previous marriage also lived in the house so in the home um, I guess Bristow was able to uh, convince this foster home to let him come investigate. I don't know. So in the home, you know, he finds a blanket that's real similar to the one that the boy Matt was was found in. Uh, and they also found a bassinet that matched the box that the boy was found in. So we've got a bassinet and we've got a blanket. Those two items match. Could they be one of the two that they couldn't make contact with? I don't know. Maybe. So, Bristow theorized that the boy belonged to Catherine's daughter, Anna Marie. And Anna Marie, not wanting to be exposed as an unwed mother, disposed of the boy's body. So, that's the theory, right? Police were unable to find... Anything other than circumstantial evidence. You know, the, the bassinet and the blanket, pretty circumstantial. That's it. That Just no solid links between the boy and the foster family. In 1998, when Arthur and his stepdaughter turned wife, um, Anna Marie, would be interviewed, um, there still was no, no linkage there. So police ended up... Um, Goes in that investigation into them, and that's that. So that is theory number one. Theory number two is about a woman named Martha, or simply M. In February of 2002, M would come forward with a claim that she knew exactly who this boy was. She would go on to tell investigators that this boy's name was Jonathan. And he was sold to her mother. And her mother would go on to abuse him for several years. M claimed that one, e one evening, her mother would feed the boy a dinner consisting of baked beans. He ended up vomiting during that dinner, which enraged her mother. So M stated that her mom had smashed his head into a wall. Some sources say it was a floor. I don't know. But 
um, a blog by True Crime Society, they were the ones who had stated that the head was smashed into a floor until he was semi-conscious. And M stated that after this happened, her mother went and bathed him. And in the bath is when he died. So this lead seems pretty promising, right? You know, we got the the baked beans because the baked beans that um that could be the brown substance that was found in the esophagus. The bath before he or you know before he died that could lead to the fingertips and the soles of his feet and all that stuff. However, there was no way to fully verify M's claims. So they kind of just let this theory slide and eventually just dismissed it, which I think is wild that they, they didn't do a more investigating, but whatever. I'm not a cop. I don't know. Now the last theory, the last theory takes place in 2008 when a renowned forensic artist named Frank Bender developed this new theory. Okay, so he states that he believed that the little boy was actually raised as a little girl. And Bender said that this could explain the hurried haircut um, and supposed plucked eyebrows. Um, And he later would go on to create a sketch of the boy as a girl in hopes of generating some new leads. However, no new leads would be found. So for 65 years this case would remain unsolved and it's still unsolved to this day. So if you know anything or if you're from the Philadelphia area and your mom, your dad, your grandma, your aunt, your uncle, your granddaddy, your grandma, somebody has told you that they heard from somebody, whatever, you know, if you know something, say something, right? So All of my sources are going to be linked in the show notes along with the tip line for the Philadelphia Police Department. And I'm also going to include the number to the Emmy's office in case, you know, you guys have some information. Let's give this boy a name. It's been way too long to not know who this little boy is. Okay, so go ahead and follow me on Instagram, murdered underscore and underscore missing rate me on Apple Podcasts, share me with your friends. Let's get it out there. Let's get the story out there. Let's get this boy a name. Find me on Facebook, Murdered and Missing, a true kind podcast. Um, you know, and I don't have a cool punchy tagline yet. So just be a good human, dudes. Just, just be a good human. If you know something, say something. Okay. Until next time, I'm out.